Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. We need more on capping vouchers, which is a serious issue knowing we are going to bankrupt this state if we don't cap now. We also have not had the Senate confirm all the governor's directors. Literally, what is the point of holding the governorship? Why did we all work to get Governor Hobbs in office and we are still short? 39% of uh, the excess money is, is going to K-12 health and welfare. You know, a lot of the infrastructure is bipartisan. We're not going to have Republican-only HOV lanes on the 10. With Title 42 set to expire in just two days, it doesn't appear that the federal government is prepared. As a result, Arizona communities will face incredible challenges trying to deal with the influx of people entering the country. I understand that you were genuinely feeling annoyed, harassed, violated by this, but it doesn't meet the uh, reasonable person test to me. And there was a legitimate purpose. I'm really excited to get to work. I know that there's gonna be a lot to do. Um, so I'm just gonna be a lot of ears and a lot of learning, and I wanna to get to work and get things accomplished so we can be respectful of everybody's time. And with me to talk about the legislature passing a bipartisan budget before Memorial Day, more turnover at the state capitol and more, our former congressional staffer and attorney Roy Herrera. Good morning, Roy. Good morning. And Chip, Chip Skatari of SNC Communications. Hey, Chip. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to both of you. So did either of you have budget passed before Memorial Day on your, on your bingo cards for this session? Any chance? I did not. No. I thought it would be June 30th. Or later, perhaps, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we had talked... At, in January about how some lawmakers were talking about the possibility of government shutdown even back in January. Chip, what what happened? Well, um, there's a a fragrance, a smell in the air of bacon. There's a lot of pork in this budget, a lot of earmarks. Uh, There's $2 billion surplus, and a lot of lawmakers and legislators got different projects. Um, You know, some super important. I know they expanded um, kid care eligibility, which is important for health insurance for kids. Um, A lot of good stuff in this budget, but there is a lot of one-time spending, a lot of one-time spending, like, you know, $15 million for the uh, Prescott Rodeo, and I was going to do that. Yeehaw! So I'll do that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but, you know, it, I think that, you know, it's a 14% increase, you know, $2.2 billion more in, in dollars. Um, and I think that kind of showed, you know, that, that's how they came to this agreement so quickly because there was that money to kind of give earmarks to different lawmakers and to get this to the finish line. Yeah, Roy, a lot of money for infrastructure projects. Chip mentioned kids care money going to the the housing trust fund. There's some money for emergency shelters, things like that. Yet, a lot of Democrats didn't vote for it. And those that did, it was kind of a hold your nose and vote for it. Yeah, I mean, I think Chip hit the nail on the head on why we got here, which is this budget surplus allowed for a lot of maneuvering. Um, you know, I used to work for Ed Pastor, who was the king of earmarks in his day, so I have no problem with the, <laughs> with the earmarks that were in this budget. But that certainly helped. And, you know, a lot of that... Spending went into Democratic priorities, um, whether that be K-12 education, universities, community colleges, the housing trust fund um, uh, infusion that Chip mentioned. All those things are, are really good things. There were some consternation or some consternation on the Democratic side, I think, related to not, you know, the budget failing to cap or roll back the ESA voucher program. But, you know, my view from the beginning of session was always that 
you know, rolling back the ESA program was something that was just not going to happen under the current paradigm of a Republican-controlled legislature, even with this Democratic governor. Um, and so to me, that was just really never in the cards. And the solution to that problem has always been in electoral politics with Democrats taking over the legislature. So I know there's some, you know, um, disappointment at that. But I think ultimately that is going to be solved in the election of 2024. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious what you make of the fact that so many Democrats were upset about that in particular as you say, knowing that the Republicans in the legislature, I mean, Ben Toma, the House Speaker, is the one who sponsored the bill last year to start the universal voucher program. Like, it just seemed like it was never a reality. There was some criticism, I think, of the governor saying, you know, perhaps she didn't negotiate hard enough or, or perhaps she shouldn't have sort of put it in her opening budget proposal or in her state of the state and things like that mm. and setting expectations that way. You know, I have no sense whether or how hard she negotiated behind the scenes on the ESA uh, program, but I I always felt that this was something that you know the Republicans would simply just not cave in, and if that was something that was truly going to be, you know, something that the governor wouldn't walk away from, we would be in that scenario in June thirtieth with perhaps having a government shutdown, which nobody wanted. But again, it goes back to you know the solution therein lies in electoral politics, and and Democrats have to take control of the legislature, which very well could happen, right? I mean, Democrats only have a one seat deficit in both chambers, so it's very real. But there are a lot of good things in this budget, uh, a lot of things that Democratic leadership and the legislature legislature negotiated for like that K-12 education and a lot of the infrastructure projects. I mean, we mentioned the Prescott uh, uh, the Rodeo, rodeo uh, but there are all, all other projects in there that are very important, including expanding some of our highways and things like that that are, are vital to the state's economic future. Chip, is there a particular irony here that this, the legislature and leadership was able to get some number of Republicans on board by, as you say, basically offering them pork, offering them earmarks? Yeah, I think former uh, Republic columnist Bob Robb, who now is a Substack column, wrote a great piece on that this morning that the MAGA elected Republicans really are populist. They're more populist than they are fiscal hawks. Um, I mean, the days of Senator John McCain or Senator Jeff Flake, you know, out, you know, abandoning earmarks or doing away with earmarks, that didn't happen in this budget cycle. So I think it showed that, you know, th these guys want to get projects for their districts. And as a wise man once told me, you know, one man's pork is another man's progress. So, you know, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But I will say, getting back to the, the expansion of the ESAs, I do think there's a legitimate compromise if people would come to the table. Now, it probably won't happen, but I do think you can tie it to just, you know, federal poverty level, just income mm. availability, because I think personally, as a proud product of, you know, Catholic schools in New Jersey, you know, I'm not against private schools, I'm not against school choice, but I do think that this should be for the less fortunate who can't afford a private school tuition. And I think giving people, you know, in North Scotts or Paradise Valley, you know, 7000 or $10,000 to send their kids to school isn't responsible budgeting, isn't responsible for the long-term health of our public schools in Arizona. Chip, we all often hear that in a compromise, like there's something for everyone to like and something for everybody to hate. Does this seem like that was the case with this budget? I mean, we've talked with Roy about some of the stuff that, that Democrats didn't like, specifically the ESAs. Presumably, there are also things that Republicans weren't super fond of, I would imagine. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. This, but as Roy pointed out, I think we mentioned at the top that this was a unique year because of this $2 billion surplus. I mean, I think the carry forward, which is a budget term for what they have next year, I think it's down to like 9 or $10 million. Wow. So next legislative session, they're not going to have, you know, the governor and the lawmakers, le legislative leadership won't have all these dollars to solve their problems. And it's gonna, that's going to be where the rubber hits the road. 
Um, and I, I don't know if we're going to talk about it later, but one of the big things missing in this budget is the continuation of the extension of the Prop 400 transportation sales tax. Which for Maricopa a, County. For Maricopa County, which is a huge deal for not only Maricopa County, for the state, for economic development, air quality, jobs. Um, you know, so uh, that was a big deal. So, um, you know, the glass half empty part of me says Governor Hobbs made a missed out an opportunity to leverage, you know, the bully pulpit to make sure there's a Prop 400 vote before the state budget is signed. The glass half full side of me says hopefully something next week can be worked out, you know, before these guys go home for the summer. Well, so Roy, typically in a legislative session, you know, they pass the budget, they have a few things left to do, and then they go home. But as we've talked about, there's Prop 400 still to come. We had Senator Steve Kaiser on yesterday talking about some of his housing bills that he'd really like to get done. There's still some pretty big stuff out there. Do you think that there will still be momentum or in some cases leverage to get those things done? I mean, it's hard to say. And, and I want to echo what Chip just said about the importance of extending Prop 400. I mean, it's absolutely vital, again, to the economic growth of the state, to the economic future of the state for something like that to get done. So I'm hopeful that, you know, whether it be the governor or the cities are negotiating now with Republicans down at the legislature to get something done before everybody goes home, that that is one of the things that does happen in the next week or two. Housing, I think, is a little trickier because I think, you know, with the housing proposals, the various housing proposals that have been floated around at the Capitol, you know, I think there's a still question about what this governor supports as far as what her proposal is or what her view is on affordable housing, for example, and what she wants to see going forward. So again, you know, there may be negotiations over the next week on that issue where we see something get worked out. But it is a little bit, you know, to Chip's point, a little bit more difficult to do that post-budget because most of the time a lot of these big issues get rolled into the larger budget discussions and you use your leverage in the budget to get what you want. So it's a little bit unclear how that's going to work out now, but a particular on Prop 400, I'm hopeful something happens. Yeah, so we have to remember we're one of the fastest growing counties in America, if not the fastest. So, um, you know, when you think of the coming gridlock or, you know, all the transportation challenges, and I'll give you one world, real world impact of last year's veto um, of Prop 400, you know, State Route 30, the I-10 reliever, huge project. The estimated co- increase in cost of that project alone is $168 million because of delays. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be more and more of these issues that come up. So I'm really hoping the governor, elected officials, business community can come together maybe next week, cobble, get a vote on the floor and get it passed because it's a huge deal for the future of our state. Chip, let me ask you about one of the new members at the Capitol who I believe she was sworn in on Monday and then voted on a budget on on Wednesday. Um, Julie Willoughby replaced the expelled Liz Harris. Um, Does this change much? I mean, obviously, the board had to nominate, had to appoint a Republican to replace a Republican. Does her presence there as opposed to Liz Harris, does that change much? I think it can change the electoral politics because, as Roy knows, this is a swing district. So how she in the Chandler Chandler area, area, that is a huge swing district. I know it's a huge opportunity that my, my Democrat friends think it's a huge opportunity for a pickup. So how she acts next session, how she governs, is she pragmatic or is she more of the MAGA, you know, type? Um, in that swing district, that's going to have a big impact. So she, people will be watching how she acts on taxes, education, ESAs. Um, it, it's a big move, and we'll see how she, uh, you know, what what her governing strategy will be moving forward. 
And Roy, as Chip said, this is a swing district. It's represented currently by one Republican, one Democrat. That Democrat, though, says she's not running for re-election. So we will basically have one incumbent Republican who's there for essentially half a term and then an open seat. Does that complicate things for Democrats maybe to pick up a seat there? It does. Um, you know, certainly I think we'd be in a stronger position if Representative Pollock had come back. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the road to the majority in the legislature is going to go through that Chandler district. I, that's actually the district I grew up in myself. Um, and that's a very swingy district. And to, to Chip's point, I mean, on the new representative, Willoughby, it, you know, she's going to have, you know, perhaps her positions on, on taxes and other things like other Republicans. But the real question to me is, is she going to have the same views on election denialism in some of the conspiracy theories that Liz Harris, who she is replacing, uh, had? If she does go down that path, then I think she is going to have a difficult time getting reelected because I don't think that that Chandler swing district is going to reward those kinds of conspiracy theorists um, in the legislature next year. At least I'd hope not. And so, again, it's going to go down to that t- particular district on who has the majority and who represents that district the best. And, but, and if I could just add piggyback on Roy's comments, if you saw the former president, Donald Trump, on CNN town hall, he is clearly doubling down on election denialism and embracing the big lie. And, you know, and that filters down to con- Congress, state, local level. So there'll be more pressure on representatives, state representatives like a Julie Willoughby to follow that party line, which will actually, you know, obviously hurt in a general election. So, But I was going to say, Chip, she has to, would have to get through a primary first, sure. right? Where and, and in that district who nominated three candidates, Liz Harris was the top vote getter. Clearly, her stances on things seem to be popular there still. Yeah, exactly. So that's why, you know, that's why this there's a this this dilemma of the election denialism. Real it works really well in ruby red districts when you don't really have a tough primary. In general elections or in swing districts, it's, you know, it's a death knell for a candidate, you know, in a, in a purple state like Arizona. So, um yeah, that, that it'll be really fascinating to see how she she acts in a in, when she's, you know, next year's a presidential year. Right. So there'd be a lot of pressure, a lot of focus on these Republicans in these primaries to tote the party, you know, big lie line. All right. That is Chips Guitari, also joined by Roy Herrera. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Roy, we were talking about uh, Julie Willoughby uh, just before the break. I want to get your take also on Representative Andres Cano, who announced this week that he would be leaving the legislature after this term to go uh, to do a fellowship at Harvard. His district is not a swing district. It's a pretty heavily Democratic district. But I'm curious in terms of, you know, always people always talk about young leadership at the state capitol. He's fairly young and is the leader of the House Democrats. Is his, how big of a loss, I guess, for, for Democrats is his departure. Well, I think it's a big loss. I mean, Representative Kano is a dear friend of mine, somebody I, I deeply respect and, you know, was looking forward to seeing as the Speaker of the House, uh, you know, in 2025. But obviously, he's taking, you know, the, he's making the decision that's best for him and going to Harvard. Um, you know, he's, he's going to be an Ivy League grad, so I'm happy <laughs> for him uh, doing that. But it does, you know, set up a, a question of, you know, who's going to be leader in the world where Democrats do take the majority, which I, ho- I hope we live in in 2025. You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, we have a leadership team. I think everyone's going to move up one. But we'll see sort of in the new caucus if we do get to that point where there's a Democratic majority on, on, on whether they uh, have somebody new. But it does go back to your question of like it's difficult, I think, to be a legislator down there uh, for and being an elected official in general. I think under this current uh, microscope and kind of division between the parties can, can be hard. And so I don't envy anybody. I mean, I certainly never myself wanted to go down the legislature. <laughs> I think for that very reason. Uh, but um, but I, I do want to thank him for the, the work he's done. And we will have a number of of new people. And certainly even in this session, we've had a number yeah. of new people down there. So it's hard to kind of assess what everybody's going to be doing. You know, this is supposed to be a citizen legislature. We 
have to remember that. And I've said it on the show once or twice, and I'll say it again, that these guys and gals, women, men and women, are highly, highly underpaid. 24 $24,000 $24, To basically give up your life from January to June with all the pressure and stress and now the politicization. So, um, you know, I'm, he's probably moving on with his life. Maybe he'll come back to politics. But we have to remember this shouldn't be a, a career. It should be, you know, it's public service. And these people do give a lot of their time. And, you know, when if you go into – I've seen um, different business settings where someone will be moderating a forum and they'll be like, hey, uh, you know, there will be an audience of business leaders. Raise your hand if you're willing to run for the legislature and not a hand goes up. <laughs> so these yeah. people, you know, take it on and, you know, for all the, uh, the, all the guff they take from, you know, the media and from the public. Public, you know, it is still a public service, and we should respect that. Chip, let me stick with you on the uh, story this week of State Senator Wendy Rogers. Uh, there's a hearing in Flagstaff. She, of course, had a, 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 a rest- basically a restraining order against a reporter for the Arizona Capital Times who was ringing her the doorbell at a couple homes that uh, that um, Rogers owns. The judge in that case really wasn't didn't seem like he was having it, and got rid of it. So, you know, who knows where that investigation is going to go. Basically is looking at whether Rogers lives in her district Mm -hmm. or not, which lawmakers are supposed to do. How many doors did you knock on? I mean, you were a Capitol reporter for the Republic for a long time. Yeah. Like, you knocked on some doors, right? Oh, my God. My first job was in Trenton, New Jersey, and I was the night cops reporter. Oh, wow. And was, <laughs> when there was murder or mayhem or shooting, they said, hey, Scutari, get your butt out there and talk to everybody on the street. So that's what, how I learned, you know, and it was a, it's a great training ground because you can't be afraid. You have to go up to people and be respectful. Sure. So what, what this Arizona Capital Times reporter was doing was her job. She was finding, tracking mm-hmm. down a lead, making sure that, it was, you know, she's following the facts. So I was kind of disappointed that this judge even took this case on. Uh, Roy could speak to the legalities of it. I thought it was absolutely ludicrous because that's just reporters doing your job. And speaking of being a public servant, you know, one of the, the tasks is, you know, you're going to be down at the Capitol, t- talk to reporters. You know, you don't always have to, but that's part of the job. So I was glad the judge threw this out. It's nonsense. Uh, it doesn't seem like Miss Rogers wants to talk to the media anyway. So she was using this as an excuse. But it's part of the job of journalists to go to people's, you know, you have to go to their houses. So it's, sometimes it's uncomfortable. You're under tracking down a controversial store and you have to go to their, their workplace. And I've been yelled at a lot of times by a lot of people and just part of the job. Yeah, Roy, a lot of folks were saying this was kind of a test of the First Amendment. Um, I understand you're an elections lawyer, not specifically a First Amendment lawyer, but how, how big of a test of the First Amendment might this have been? Well, I mean, I'm just happy that the judge immediately saw it for what it was and, and tossed it out because very clearly, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that Wendy Rogers pursued a dubious legal theory, but this would violate the First <laughs> Amendment and, and the freedom of the press. And, you know, in, in something like this, I mean, we have um, laws in on residency when it comes to elected officials in Arizona. And, you know, very simply, this journalist was tracking down a lead on whether a particular elected official fulfilled her requirements for having public office, which makes total sense. And also there was, at least from what I've seen, no evidence or anything to show that there was any sort of harassment going on as this reporter, you know, was actually trying to track that down. So she was tracking down something that was very relevant. Um, She was doing her job. And certainly she's protected from doing, you know, by doing that from the First Amendment. And I think that's what ultimately happened here in the legal case. So guys, something that happened yesterday that is having effects already, was having effects in Arizona and most likely will continue, is the end of Title 42, the pandemic era border policy. Roy, we've seen uh, Governor Hobbs name a Title 42, I forget the title she gave, basically like a, a, a coordinator to deal with all of this. She was in Tucson talking in Phoenix with uh, border mayors and sheriffs. 
politically anyway, this seems like it's a pre- – I mean obviously humanitarian-wise and service-wise, it's a very, very big deal. But also politically, it seems like it's not going to be a small thing either. Well, you know, this is Arizona and immigration policy, border policy is always just one of those central issues, sometimes a central wedge issue here. But I think the governor, along with our two state uh, U.S. senators, have expressed some real concerns um, about this administration's plans for how to deal with the end of Title 42, which makes total sense. I mean, I'm a strong supporter of the president, but I think even I have questions about what this administration uh, is planning to do with the expected coming influx of migrants at the border. And, you know, again, the governor, I think, called into question, you know, do we have enough resources at the border, whether it be local organizations, local governments to deal with the housing and transportation related to the migrants that that may may appear. And there needs to be answers to that. And I think most of those answers need to come from the federal government. And I think that's what we're all waiting on. But this is a complicated issue. It's it's one of the reasons why I think we haven't seen any meaningful immigration reform coming out of Congress in, what, 40 years at this point, because it is so difficult. I was going to say this is one area where President Biden really has upset both sides of the political spectrum. Um, But, you know, as Roy mentioned, it's a very complex issue. And we have to remember why this is happening, because most of these people are coming from countries where they're either scared for their lives or, you know, there's really bad things happening. Um, You know, and we're going to need, I hate to say it, a bipartisan compromise, which, you know, most, you know, especially the the, the MAGA Republicans just want bumper sticker slogans, and it's much more uh, intricate than that. But I I don't know why the Biden administration's not uh, putting more resources before they ended Title 42. It didn't make sense to me. And even, you know, Senator Sinema and Governor Hobbs are all on the same page saying we need more resources. It's not fair to, you know, cities like Yuma and others along the border who will be dealing with this influx of people. Just looking at it from a, a raw politics perspective, I wonder if this is an opportunity for someone like Governor Hobbs, someone like Senator Kelly to come out against their party, against the president from their party. I think it's a it's a speaking raw raw yes. politics. Yes, it's a great opportunity to to act tough or do do some smart things on the on the border, but talk tough and be tough and have have some sensible pragmatic solutions. Um, I remember back when I was covering Governor Politano, she was not afraid to take on you know people of her party when it came to helping out Arizonans. I think Arizona voters want to know you're with them, whether what, what party you are. You know, if the, the White House has a Democrat or Republican in it, you want to take care of Arizonans first. So I think there could be maybe over the summer some kind of uh, framework worked out in the state to you know, surge resources there, do something. I think that could be a big win for Governor Hobbs and and Republican lawmakers here. Roy, is there any hope that maybe after a bipartisan budget that the governor and legislative Republicans and legislative Democrats could potentially carry that forward and maybe do something on the state level to to help the situation? Well, it's difficult to do that because, again, as I mentioned before, I mean, this immigration issue is is primarily a federal issue. Right. So it's hard to, you know, at the state level, I mean, we obviously saw some sort of half-hearted attempts by Governor Ducey in putting up, you know, bo- you know containers at the border and things like that, which obviously weren't effective. Um, you know, so the really, you know, the question is, like, do you put enough pressure on the federal government to get something done? And, you know, this is an incredibly complex issue, and it's an important issue. I mean, from an immigration perspective, from an economic perspective, excuse me, immigration is hugely important. Our relationship is particularly in Arizona with Mexico is hugely important. Um, you know, having legal immigration in this country going forward is hugely important. But balancing that along with sort of practicalities at the borders and, you know, something that we have to do. 
And I think that's ultimately something that Congress and this president has to do. The governor can only sort of express her opinion at the end of the day. You know, Arizona, speaking of raw politics, Arizona will be one of the four or five swing states in the 2024 presidential election. So, you know, Governor Hobbs can use her bully pulpit to, you know, invite Joe, you know, invite President Biden here to visit the board and actually answer questions um, and, you know, kind of put him on the spot and show that she's working on behalf of all Arizonans and, you know, working on this border crisis. Should we have any measure of optimism that Congress can actually come up with a solution here? No. Okay. (laughs) Probably not. I I wish the answer would be different, but probably not. All right. So, guys, we have just about a minute left. And uh, last night was a a tough night for a lot of of Valley sports fans. Um, Chip, I know you were crying in your beer last night uh, after after the Suns lost their their playoffs. What do you think is going to be the biggest change to the Suns for next year? Um, I think two things. I think, um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of speculation over Monty Williams, the head coach's job, if he goes or stays, because it's been four years now and they can't get him over the hump in two straight years where they've lost in blowouts in the playoffs to end their season. And I think the second thing, I'm hearing a rumor that uh, former KJZZ host and anchor <laughs> Steve Goldstein is going to take over for Al McCoy. So those are the two theory- things I'm hearing through right. the grapevine. Well, you know, John Bloom's a Syracuse guy, so oh, there, m- there might be a little go disagreement Q's. there. Roy, what do you think? <laughs> Well, I mean, first of all, I can talk about the Suns for like hours, so <laughs> Sorry, bring me back, please. Uh, but no, I mean, I think ultimately Monty Williams' job is probably, I mean, this is the second straight year where there's an elimination game and they get blown out. And I think there's some motivational problems there potentially. And so I think most of the time you play that on your coach. Uh, but I also think DeAndre Ayton may, may be looking at selling his house soon. <laughs> all right. Roy Herrera, Chips Guitari, thanks guys for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.